I'm not saying that sacrifice isn't necessary and that you can have it all all the time. You can't. And you must, you know, at some level make sacrifices. However, what I've found in my now three decades of research on this topic is that if you put on a different set of lenses and ask yourself, where are there opportunities that I can take up and have some control over where I can take action that's going to have a benefit for all the different parts of my life, not just my work, but for my family and my community and for myself. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from William Arthur Ward, and it is, the mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, and the great teacher inspires. Our guest today, Stu Friedman, has the remarkable responsibility of teaching people to be great leaders. He's the founding director of the Wharton Leadership Program at the University of Pennsylvania, an award-winning teacher who inspires rock star adoration from his students. He's also the best-selling author of Leading the Life You Want and Total Leadership and is the host of the Work and Life podcast. Stu, welcome. Excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. It's great to be here, Bob. Thanks for having me. So you joined the Wharton faculty in 1984. And before that, I think you earned your PhD in organizational psychology. What drew you into psychology early in your professional life? So psychology has always been an interest of mine. I was an undergraduate major in psychology and literature, and I thought I was going to be pursuing a career as a clinical psychologist. And in my adventures in the 70s, exploring that field, I came to realize that while I had something to offer and really uh, grew a lot through the experience of working as a clinician and being trained uh, as a clinician in a variety of different settings, including in a psychiatric hospital in Vermont, a college counseling center in the Catskill Mountains and some other places. I also realized that I wanted to be sort of out of the clinic and into the wider world in my everyday And that's when I discovered organizational and social psychology and pursued a PhD set of options in both clinical and organizational and social psychology. So I I applied to a variety of of programs and then ultimately chose to go in the direction of of organizational psychology. And I'm, I'm very glad that I did. And I think people generally probably know what organizational and social psychology is, but could you give us the professorial definition? Well, it's the psychology of people at work. So it's the experiences that people have in organizations and that affect their lives and their performance. It is also more, if you get more into the sociology of it, the design of organizations and the relationship between organizations and organizations and society. But my work is at the level of the individual in organizations and the conditions and policies and programs and experiences that people have in organizations that affect their performance. And from my perspective, not just at work, but in the other parts of their lives as well. Is it the same fundamental principles? So is it different schools of psychology? Is it, is it integrated or is it just applied in a different way? Or how, how does that sort of cross over in the academic realm? 
the field of organizational psychology is, is actually pretty new. It began in the late 40s, early 50s, and the emphasis was on trying to make work organizations better for human beings. Uh, a big push in the early days of this field came from those people who were interested in reforming organizational life so that it would be more humane because there were practices in America in the 20s and 30s that were threatening our um, system because they were oppressive practices and there was the threat of revolution. So the field of organizational psychology, in part, emerged as a kind of reform of practices that were leading people to want to tear the whole system down, to account for the fact that it's not machines we've got working here, it's people. Right. We've got to understand them not as extensions of machines, but as human beings that have their own needs and desires, and that if we're smart about it, we can understand what it will take for us to create the conditions in which people can grow and contribute and be healthy. And I assume this is sort of an evolution that goes along with time, because I think the first wave was all the Frederick Taylor, right? And how, how do we actually optimize people on the assembly line in work? And we probably took those principles and extended them too long to work that was not assembly line oriented. Exactly. The, the early work by Taylor and others to basically engineer work so that it would be most efficient resulted in part in you know, the invention of the assembly line, which was dehumanizing and it was inefficient. And that, that realization became very apparent in, in strikes and in sabotage and people basically revolting against a system that treated them as uh, extensions of the machine. So, you know, the early, early designers, the engineers of work, they missed an essential aspect of design work for the industrial age. And that is that you've got a human being there and you've got to account for that if you're going to, if you're going to have, you know, collaboration and cooperation over time. Yeah. And one of the terms that you and I both don't like is work-life balance. So you actually started in 1991, you started the work-life integration project at Wharton you know, it occurs to me like that it might have been a little bit ahead of its time. So I'd love to hear about sort of when you started that, like what was the you know reaction at the time or how did it, what was the impetus to get that going? Well, the uh, early days of the work-life movement, if you can call it that, and I think you can, yeah. <laughs> in like the 80s. And this was another sort of shift forward in the progress of uh, corporate culture in America there were a lot of things happening in the 70s and 80s, in part stimulated by the research that was being done by organizational psychologists who were looking to create work environments that had a higher quality of life. Yeah. And in the 80s, for me personally, I was teaching at Wharton. My dissertation research had been on leadership development practices, what large companies do to cultivate leadership talent at the highest levels and how they select and develop people for the, you know, the top echelons of companies. That's what I was studying. That's what I was consulting to companies on their succession planning, talent management practices. But I'd always had an interest in human development and adult development and how social systems, the roles that we play affect who we become. 
Uh, I'd studied that as a graduate student as well. That was kind of like my minor, but my major was in leadership growth. And that's what I'd been working on for a number of years in the early part of my career at Wharton. But then my first child was born. And that really changed things for me as I was transformed by the experience of meeting him, holding him, and realizing I've got to take care of him, which was something that I kind of knew, but didn't really know until I met him. And I couldn't get this thought out of my head. What am I going to do to ensure that he grows up in a world that's going to nourish him, cultivate his his growth as a full and healthy person. What does that mean for me and what can I do? Uh, so I was asking everyone. Of course, I asked my parents. I, uh, I asked you know, all the people I, I could get a hold of, like, how do I do this? I was, I was really wondering and thinking, what can I do? And I was, I was getting some important wisdom. And when I got back into my MBA classroom in October 1987, and the class session that was prepared for that day was on motivation and reward systems. Very important topic. Yeah, very aligned. I said to the students, you know, there's something else I got to talk to you about that is really important, I think, for you, for your future. So let's put aside the topic that we had prepared for today. And, and I just started ranting. I was unprepared for this. It just happened where I just started talking about what I saw as a really pressing issue. What are you going to do as future business leaders to ensure the healthy development of the next generation, not just of talent in your business, but the next generation, period. Right. And what does this mean for you personally? If you're involved in the project of child rearing in some way. And, you know, that was a turning point for me, that session, because, you know, a number of the people in the class were, they were pissed off that we weren't going to be working on the topic that they had prepared for that day. Yeah. But they were also annoyed with like, why are we talking about children? This is a business school, huh? You know, I don't get it. And, you know, also really no one cares about your personal life professor. So do we have to talk <laughs> about this? So there was, there was all that happening in the room, but there was also another part of the room, men and women who were kind of leaning forward and yeah, I'm, so glad you brought this up because I've been thinking about this. I'm worried about this and I, I need help. And in response to my question, what are you going to do? One student turned around and said, well, you're the professor, you tell us. And, you know, I was just asking the question, which I think is my superpower, Bob. I mean, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> I ask questions, you know, that tend to provoke further thought. And I think that is my particular talent. For some people, it's difficult. Like my daughter refers to most of my questions as annoying. Um, because, <laughs> because to her, they are not Socratic, but annoying. Right, exactly. At least for her. But that moment, I realized, I mean, not exactly in that second, but that episode in my in my life made me realize, ah, maybe I had the training, I had the opportunity to explore this question in a way that might help these people and others like them. So I went about trying to mobilize resources to study this question and realized that there were some other people doing that too. Very few men, mostly women. 
at that time. We could talk about why that is, why that was. And that motivated me, again, to bring together resources to study the question, how do people integrate the different parts of their lives in a way that is you know, mutually enriching? And of course, it wasn't just about being a parent. It was about being yourself, whoever that is, and bringing that into the workplace in a way that is of benefit both to the business, to the organization's goals, as well as to the person and society. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate it's occurred to me and we've talked about this and as we built our company you know we focused on investing in people holistically seeing the the performance and the improvement at work and them getting the benefit at home mm-hmm. and i would say that one drives the other like it, it really works why do so many leaders think it's one or the other so why do they feel like that person can't be doing well if they're not chained to the desk 14 hours a day you know, I've, I've been very critical of the, you know, the Marissa Meyer stuff, you know, 10 years ago saying, you know, I, I work harder than everyone or 140 hours a week and really like setting the wrong example. But it seems there's still very fractured camps here. I think there's a set of leaders really embracing this. And then there's ones that they really think that it's a choice between people working hard or getting stuff done. Right. The trade-off mentality is very destructive. And you are among, you know, the progressive leaders who understands that that's just wrong. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. Those of us who've been studying this for a long time know that balance, I believe the balance is just, it's bullshit. It's the wrong yeah. metaphor. And when you think of the scales and balance, you naturally are thinking about what you have to sacrifice in the other parts of your life in order to be successful in your professional life. 
Right. And that's just a destructive uh, mindset because it forces you to think about what you have to sacrifice, which, you know, I'm not saying that sacrifice isn't necessary and that you can have it all, all the time. You can't, and you must, you know, at some level make sacrifices. However, what I've found in my now three decades of research on this topic is that if you put on a different set of lenses and ask yourself, where are there opportunities that I can take up and have some control over where I can take action that's going to have a benefit for all the different parts of my life, not just my work, but for my family and my community and for myself. And when you ask yourself that question, instead of like, what do I have to sacrifice? You ask, where can I create value in the different parts? You're going to find those opportunities. To get back to your question, why does the trade-off mentality persist? This is the legacy of the concept of the ideal worker as the single earner who is a male who has a, a wife at home tending to childbearing. Because that was the dominant model and the ideology of corporate America, you know, in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And with the advent of the human potential movement and feminism growing as a force in society and opportunities for women to contribute in all dimensions of life in a way that they hadn't had the opportunity to, to contribute previously. You know, all those and other factors changed the dynamics of who was going to be doing what, who was going to be responsible for child rearing, who was going to be responsible for breadwinning. And, you know, this was part of what I was envisioning and seeing as, you know, the natural evolution of the workplace back in the late 80s, early 90s. It wasn't just me trying to figure out how to be a good father, although that was the sort of personal, most intimate motivation for my research. It was clear that this was going to become an increasingly important issue in society. Now, there are cultural mores, values that are just so deeply rooted into just so many aspects of organizational life that we don't even think about how to change the model for, of, of what the ideal worker is and should be, but that is shifting for you know, some of the reasons that I, that I just suggested. So cultural change, it's a slog. Yeah. It takes time. I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, but it's a great question and there's a lot more to explore in that. But isn't part of it a function of inputs versus outputs uh, from a leader? You know, one of the things that I've seen is that if you look at sales, right, and you said to any leader in sales, like, who would you rather have? Rep A who works two hours a day and closes, you know, $100,000 business or, or Rep B who works 14 hours a day and closes $25,000 of business a day. Like, everyone would choose Rep A. But we seem to be choosing in, in all other aspects of business that I understand that it's not as clear, but right. somehow we're focused on the inputs and not the outcomes when it's super clear to us in, in something like sales. Well, and, and you're getting to the heart of the matter. Uh, you know, what are the early findings that we observed in our research when we went out into the field and found people who were good at the game, the challenge of integrating the different parts of their lives as leaders in all of them? One of the things we found is that these people are super focused on results and very free and experimental, constantly <laughs> creating new ways of getting things done that are going to help them you know, advance their results that, that matter. Uh, so they're less focused on how stuff gets done and much more focused on what they get done. 
now with sales, you, you've got clear indicators. Yeah. Uh, so that's an easier call to make, just as you laid out the, you know, the stark and simple contrast between person A and person B. But so much of work in the knowledge economy in our world today is hard to measure. Yeah. So when you have ambiguity on what constitutes greatness or even goodness and performance, you use proxies for that. And those proxies are often poor substitutes. And one obvious proxy that people fall back on is FaceTime or time clocked. But as you point out, it can be inversely related to quality. Plus, you said you, you, what you measure is what you get. And so if you, if you put a focus on butt in seat time, you get that over outcomes, right? Exactly, exactly. And so uh, one of the things that, that we try to help organizations and leaders focus on is what are the results that matter? And let's get really clear about that. And then let's create opportunities for people to figure out the best ways to produce those results in ways that are going to be sustainable for them and for your business. And that means accounting for the fact that they are human beings with lives outside of work that can actually help to keep people persevering in the, in, in the face of frustration and disappointment, you know, that they have support, that they are healthy, that they're taking care of their mind, body, and spirit. You need those things to persist. So at one point in your career, you, you left the classroom, did a two-year assignment at the Ford Motor Company where you helped the CEO lead an initiative to try to transform their culture. You're back in the classroom. So what, you know, what, what did you learn about that experience and about your, your, your kind of that job and yourself? And tell us about it. That was truly transformative. So, you know, the early 90s, as you said at the top, uh, I started the Work-Life Integration Project and the, and the leadership program. And we were getting a lot of attention in the media for both of those, particularly on the work and life side, because here was a, a man at Wharton talking about families and kids. And that was just weird at that time. So we got a lot of attention. I got a lot of attention just because of like the demography of who I was and what I was studying and what I was doing. Um, a lot of media coverage. And, and then, you know, the leadership program after, you know, a number of iterations finally started to achieve success. Wharton got the number one rating. And part of that was attributed to what we were doing in the leadership program. So there was this visibility that led the CEO of Ford, who had just come in and was committed to changing the culture of the company from sort of manufacturing inward focus to consumer focused and thinking more about the market. So he brought in like 30 of us at the senior executive level in one fell swoop, you know, in the first four or five months of his tenure to be an infusion of new blood. And, and I was a part of that. So he asked me to reinvent leadership development at Ford. And I was the global head of leadership development for the company for like two and a half years. And that was, uh, you know, I had worked as a consultant, as a faculty advisor on a number of corporate learning institutes that were coming into vogue in the 80s and 90s. A big part of my work life was doing that work as an external agent. And I had led and built, you know, small teams in, in the academic sphere, creating the leadership program, cultivating that. But this was a whole different thing to be a senior executive reporting to an officer of the Ford Motor Company, himself a 30-year veteran, and being a full-time executive and growing a, an organization that started with 12 people. There were 50 in it by the time I left. And twice that many who external 
consultants that we were hiring for various programs. And that just radically shifted my view of just about everything in my entire life. It was a great education, often painful, especially at the beginning when I thought I knew what I was doing, but I soon realized that I had no clue and I needed a lot of help and made a bunch of mistakes. But after I started to figure it out, we got a lot of really important things done there, I thought, including and especially the creation of this total leadership program. So when I first interviewed with the CEO for the job, I said, look, Jack, what I'm going to do here is leadership from the point of view of the whole person. I had just published in 1998, the end of 1998, one of the first articles in Harvard Business Review on this topic. It was called Work and Life, the End of the Zero-Sum Game. Hmm. You know, that was one of the first products of the research that we've been doing. And he said, great. I love it. Do it. And he handed me a pot of money and, uh, and off we went. And I had a, a great boss who was the guy between us, who was the head of HR for the whole organization. And uh, he really helped to guide me in how I could actually do that. And I had a lot of other people supporting me as well. But one of the things we created there was this total leadership program, which was about leading from the perspective of your whole life. And thank goodness we had that opportunity to experiment with a new model for leadership development. And, and when we tried that program out, the first few iterations, it was a revelation. I mean, people just went crazy uh, because what we were telling them was, look, what we want you to do here is to improve results for us, but also for you and your family and your society as you define those things. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Were they able to measure sort of people who were in the program or not in the program? And, and like, was there sort of some empirical analysis of, of their performance before and after the program yeah. versus their peers? Well, for the last 20 years, that's a big part of what I've been doing. Now, do we have a randomized control that compares people in our program to other programs? We actually did that once uh, in a study funded by the National Institutes of Health a $1.2 million study that looked at the impact of our program and a few other initiatives that we designed to try to change the culture of academic medicine for women at the University of Pennsylvania's medical school. Hmm. So these are junior women faculty who went through our program and a couple of other interventions, and they were in a randomized controlled study. So we had a comparison group and we looked at them before and after and on a number of outcome indicators. And what we found was that people who went through our program and 
a couple of other interventions, including manuscript writing workshop, we found that the people who went through the R program, which helps them to focus on what really matters to them and to the people around them and to get smarter about how to devote their attention to the people and projects that really matter, that their productivity was higher as a result. I mean, there's more to the story, but that was the essence of what we found. Uh, mostly, though, we are studying people before and after without having a randomized control comparison group. And our research now, thousands of people, shows that people, again, they work smarter and they're healthier as a result of clarifying what matters most to them, who matters most to them, talking to those people to get really understood about what matters to them, and then experimenting with new ways of getting things done that allows them to pursue what I call four-way wins. And that, again, is improved performance at work, at home, in the community, and for yourself. What didn't translate from the classroom to reality as, oh as expected? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're asking such wonderful questions, Bob. This is great. Uh, because, you know, there was so much uh, that I didn't know. Well, what was a theory that you were really comfortable with and then you tested it out in reality and it just it didn't line up to what you expected? Well, you know, it was more a matter of what I thought my purpose was there and how I was going to pursue it that I learned some hard lessons about really early. You know, there were some voices that were saying, okay, Stu, you're the smartest guy in the room and you're there for just, you know, a short-term assignment. So just, you know, make change happen. Then there was the reality on the ground of, realizing that I had to build support by helping other people to be successful and that it wasn't at all about me. And those really came into direct conflict almost every day from the beginning and, and until I realized, oh, my job here is to help other people to see how what I'm envisioning is going to be something that's actually good for them and for the business. And I'll never forget, like the first, I'm three weeks into the job. And we've got the global gathering of the top people in human resources in the company worldwide. It's 400 people who are the senior people in HR at Ford at the time, of whom there were 10,000 globally. So that was the size of yeah. the HR organization. <laughs> That's amazing. Because the company was 350,000 people in 80 wow. countries. So this is my opportunity to lay out my vision of leadership development for the company. And I put this thing together and I get up there and, you know, in front of the, the crowd and here's this new guy, Wharton guy, you know, he's been doing this work and I thought I had it just nailed. And as soon as I'm done, one of the most important people who helped to educate me there was somebody who was a part of the team that I inherited, pulls me aside, drags me into a room, private room. <laughs> Never a good sign. He said, what the fuck are you doing? I said, Tom, what are you talking about? Wasn't that exactly what I was supposed to do? He said, all you did was talk about yourself. I said, what? I did not. I was talking all about my vision. He said, yeah. You talked about what you thought. Right. Well, not what's in it for them. And I thought, what? I, I had no, just, anyway, I probably should not be revealing this to you or to all your listeners, but. I was naive in that sense, even though as an external consultant, I would try to coach people on being more politically aware. Yeah. When it came to my own reality, I just, I had a real big blind spot there that thankfully, you know, Tom and others helped me to try to overcome. And it, it took a while. It took a lot of effort for me to dig out of that hole that I dug on my like first 
big talk in front of my colleagues. Ugh. The old do as I say, not as I do. I would say it doesn't work in parenting and doesn't work in leadership. Yeah. So that, you know, that was among the many lessons that I learned there that, you know, you're not taught as a professor. You know, as a professor, what you learn, you know, especially if you're in a research-oriented institution as I am, what you learn early on as a graduate student is how to criticize people and how to tear up other people's ideas. Yeah. That's what you're taught how to do. You read 20 articles a day and you critique them. That's what you do for four years. Right. And you get really good at that. And here, of course, you know, what you have to do is inspire people and build them up and help them to see how what you're doing is good for them. And when I, well, so those were among the important lessons that I learned there uh, from the great people in that company. So let's fast forward. You know, one of the things I think you're in a really great perspective to talk to business leaders about is you, you have this, you know, next generation of, of people probably right on the border of Gen Y and Gen Z in your classroom. You know, what do they want and, and how does that different? You've been doing this for a while. So how, how does that different from, you know, the students of the last 20 years? And what, what does today's leader need to account for for this group coming into the workforce? Well, I'm glad you asked that because it, it gives me a chance to just hook back a little bit, just very briefly to what I was saying earlier about you know, what it was like when I first started working in the work and life space 30 years ago at that time it was quite countercultural for a man to be doing this kind of work. And there was a lot of resistance to it because of some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier about you know, the cultural values and the ideology of the ideal worker at that time right. and the inherent uh, sexism in our systems. Now it's, it's totally different. It's totally different. Thank goodness. And this is what gives me some hope about the future because today it's expected people coming into the workforce are expecting to have more egalitarian relationships where they share with their partners responsibility for both breadwinning and childbearing. I mean, it's still, it's still a man's world, but it's changing for sure in some pockets more rapidly than others. But the expectation is that I'm going to have some freedom to pursue the things that really matter to me. And it's much more acceptable to be proclaiming that, even as a junior person. Like, you know, I wanna do work that is meaningful, that's challenging, and that helps to heal the broken world that we're in. So there's a much greater consciousness about that and an ability to speak to that, even in the most hard-nosed and terrorizing work environments of old. Companies are trying to shift, and I, I, I do a lot of work trying to help those companies move into a future that young people are demanding and feel is their right to be the people they want to be and to have the freedom to be who they want to be, whether it's parents or whatever else it is that they do that's important. They want to contribute. They want to be successful in their professional lives, but they also want to have lives that are meaningful to them. Yeah, I, I just had a guest on. <laughs> we were talking about sort of the you know, how the command and control playbook is is over, whether people realize it or not. And he was saying, look, if, you, if people think they're going to have these companies where it's about, hey, come work for me and make all this money for me and work. It's like, you're going to have a company of one. Like, you're just not going to have any employees. They're going to go start their own businesses. So they're either going to change by choice or, or they're going to be forced to change. You know, I have been observing that for decades now. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, back to my earlier point about cultural change being, you know, something that takes a long time. It's happening but it 
is taking time. And the more people like you who demonstrate a different model, a progressive model that accounts for the whole person actually produces greater value for your business and is good for society and is humane, the more people like you that are winning in the marketplace, you know, that's going to be the, the set of stories that is uh, and will continue to be persuasive as you know, more and more people are open to different models. But you know, someone said that history follows a hearse and, and that you know, a certain generation of people have to die out. Yeah, that's a good line. I haven't heard that one. I don't know who to attribute to. I should. But yeah, uh, you know, it, it takes time. And you know, we're getting there. Not fast enough, but we're getting there. Well, what's next for you? Do you have any upcoming books or areas of research that you're focused on? Yes. Uh, so I've, I've published two books for Harvard Business Press. And a couple of years ago, they, uh, they came to me and said, we want you to do a book that's just for parents. Hmm. And I'm um, thinking, you know, my kids now are 31, 28, and 25. <laughs> I'm like, I'm thinking about grandchildren now. Yeah. Uh, although a lot of my work, you know, with individuals, with my students, with companies is about how to help people be the parents they want to be and, and to be successful as they define it in their professional lives. So I thought, okay, I can do this if I can have a co-author and someone who's been working with me since she was a graduate student 15 years ago is now a, you know, a tenured professor who's done great research in this area. I can have a partner in this project. She's got She's under 40 and she's got two kids under 10. And we basically take what we, what we have been developing and refining in this total leadership program, which we've now been doing in companies worldwide. We've got operations in Europe now and, and starting up in Australia and New Zealand. If we take that model and really focus it on the particular challenges of people raising children, and so we, we designed, our team designed a, a version of our program that we would deliver to parents, parents and their partners in the child rearing project. And we, we went into the lab, we, we ran that pilot, and it was a huge success. People really enjoyed and grew from and became more effective from the work of looking at their values together, yeah. defining their future together, having you know important conversations about what they really needed from each other and then what they needed from their other key people, including their kids and their coworkers and their extended families and communities, and then experimenting with how they get things done. And they got great results from that. So that project is the book that we've now just completed. We just sent it out for review and we're just going to be refining it over the summer and publishing it next year. So that's a project I'm really excited about because we're, we've also got this offering that we're going to be bringing online for people to learn this method that's described in the book. Uh, so that's, that's big. I'm also focused more and more on how to bring larger social issues into leadership development, including mm -hmm. and especially inequality and climate change which are both subjects that I see as super important for our society and for the future, and more importantly, that young people are clamoring to deal with in their lives and in their business lives. So how to integrate those big ideas into the uh, learning of leadership is really important. And, and finally, 
I'm keenly interested in how to create greater mental health in our society and what the private sector can do to help people who live with mental illness or who are helping to care for people who live with mental illness. I am one of those people personally, and so this is a, a really important issue for me, but is a very important issue for business and society. So that's another area where I am devoting effort both as an educator and as a social policy advocate. Great. Well, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to follow that and we'll, we'll have you back when the, when the book launches. So la- last question for you, what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? And that could be single or for a lot of people, it's the repeated <laughs> same mistake. Oh, man. Where do I begin? Um, <laughs> so many. I, well, I think the, the example I gave earlier about not accounting for the, how other people see me, you know, taking that leadership leap and seeing yourself through the eyes of other people, how they see you is one that I continue to wrestle with. You know, the example I gave earlier of that speech is just one very significant instance in which that's occurred, but I continue to, to work on that. And, you know, one of the ways I do is to try to help other people to develop the capacity to do that. And that, that of course, helps me to keep it top of mind. And I think the other is, uh, you know, when I was an undergrad a million years ago, early 70s, I spent a lot of my time basically getting high and playing music and missed the opportunity to to be the kind of scholar, student, you know, that I that I eventually became a number of years later. So like one of the one of the things that I try to do less of is is to waste opportunities to to take seriously the idea that you know you can grow and, and learn and you should take every opportunity to do that where those opportunities arise. So failing to be the student I could be as an undergraduate is something that I, you know, I tried to rectify as a graduate student and continue to, you know, to do throughout my, my life uh, and to help other people to do the same. I, I could go on for hours and hours about all the ways in which I've screwed up, but that's probably enough for now. That'll be the second episode. Well, actually, that, that resonates me as well. Well, Stu, how, where can people find you online? How can they get a hold of you and your work? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, TotalLeadership.org is where you can get uh, free chapters of my book and all kinds of other free resources, videos, assessment tools, uh, links to my podcast on which you have appeared famously, Bob, and that was one of my favorite episodes. Uh, So TotalLeadership.org, or you just go to Wharton and search for me there where you can find my faculty page and then links to the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project and some other cool stuff we're doing. All right, Stu, thank you for sharing your story with us. You've really led the way, showing people and companies how to have more fulfilling work and life experiences. I know I've inspired uh, many other people to do the same. Thanks so much, Bob. Really enjoyed this conversation. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Stu, his books, and the Work Life podcast on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts right now, you could just select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down, and leave your review. They make it hard to find. Uh, But if you're listening in your browser or different app, you can uh, find easy links to review uh, under the podcast link at robertglazer.com. Thank you again for your ongoing support. And until next time, keep elevating.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.